connection, half a dozen wires. Well, good evening. Good to be here in the house of the Lord tonight. Uh, we're in the book of First Timothy, chapter one, and make a little bit of progress tonight here. I know we're traveling here in a couple weeks, and I'd like to be able to wrap it all up before we leave. Uh, I think would be a good stopping point. So we have three times, Lord willing, uh, to finish out these couple verses here. So we're in. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll start in verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for our time here tonight to be able to study and grow closer to you. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Paul's testimony here recorded in 1 Timothy as he does in many other of his writings. Lord, we thank you for the truth of salvation, that it is freely available to anyone who will call upon Jesus Christ's name. The vilest sinner can be saved, Lord, and, and as we'll see in, in a later lesson, uh, who the, the Apostle Paul realized he was before you as each of us should realize who we are before you as well without Christ. Lord, we thank you for this time. Pray that you'd fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May be seated. All right. So our outline here that we've been going through, um, pictures of grace. And uh, specifically looking at the before and after pictures here, and the Apostle Paul chronicling, uh, just uh, giving us a snapshot of who he was before salvation, and then who the Lord transformed him into afterward. We lo we've looked at, in verse 13, kind of a little out of order here, a proud religionist, someone who's focused on his work that he's doing and how he can glorify himself through it while attempting, or, which is the ultimate, ultimate aim there, um, all being said that you're trying to glorify God and what you're doing in your works, uh, when they're not done of the Spirit, when they're not done out of love, the Spirit of love, and for God's glory, but for your glory, they count for nothing. That, that we saw the Apostle Paul being the proud religionist, the the one who was a, a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. Uh, then we looked at the misdirected sinner. Again, he again along these same lines, thinking that he's doing the right thing. He knows what's right. He's following what his religion says. We've looked at what religion is. Religion is man's way to try to reach the divine, as the world would see it, or man's way to reach God. But we've also seen, as the Bible testifies, that God's way to reach man is the man, Jesus Christ. Then we are in now uh, point C, a humble believer. We were we started on this a little bit last week, and we'll finish this point off here uh, this week. So a humbled believer. So if we consider verse uh, 13, the first part of it here, we see that Paul was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and we looked at the underlying word of um, 
love injurious and is basically a zealous tyrant persecutor of, of, of a sense. It kind of magnifies the persecuted word that comes before. But also consider Paul's letter to the Galatians as well. Like I alluded to earlier is that there is uh, many many of times that Paul takes the time to give us our, his testimony how in Galatians chapter 1 verse 13 he writes for ye have heard my con- of my conversation in times past of the Jews religion his conversation his manner of doing things not necessarily what you speak it's what you do your actions speak louder than words as the cliche goes they most certainly do what you do says more about you than what you say you do for ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. This word wasted is not a light word. Uh, it, it is uh, devastating, devastated the church. Persecuted beyond measure, as the verse is defining here. Verse 14, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation. So here he's saying the same basic things. I was one zealous of my religion, uh, as, as he's speaking here, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation. He was the guy who did it the best, is what he's saying here. There wasn't anybody else that was as zealous as Saul of Tarsus was. And I I find it interesting here, too, how he writes in the Jews' religion. And that's really what Judaism had become. If we could trace back the origins of the Jewish people to Abraham, that what was it that delighted the Lord? It was his faith his simple faith and trusting that God would do what he promised to do. And our trust in him, exercising faith in the Lord to keep his promises. Going down the line after God had used the Jewish people to bring forth the law to the nations. Right, The law is there for the unlawful person to prove that you are not good enough to measure up to God's standard. Yet, the Jewish people later took and expanded and elevated their writings and teachings beyond that of revealed scripture. They created their own religion, in a sense. That religion persists today. today. It is one of many world religions. Now, do they recognize one God? Yes. Do they recognize the one true God? Partially. They don't have the complete picture yet, right? The one true God is a triune being. We could go back and look at the verses in Genesis that talks about about this this truth. Uh, Akkad is a Hebrew word. The Lord is one Lord. It, it, in this in this sense, um, one complete being. We know, as the Bible's revealed to us, that God is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Judaism today is blind to that fact. And the Apostle Paul in his day was blind to that fact as well. He was all about his religion. 
and how I profited the Jews' religion above my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous in the of the tradition of my fathers. Right here, the tradition, not the revealed word of God to him. The tradition. Are we making sure that on the Sabbath day we're only walking a, a prescribed number of paces with the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees or various other things? Can I pick up a stick? If my donkey falls into a ditch, can I go get it? on the Sabbath day. This is what religion teaches. Now, I want to pause there for a minute because I'm not sure if we didn't get to a case study last time, but if you have a copy of the case study. Um, does anybody have an Uncle Ted, first of all, before we go? Ted, Uncle Ted, Uncle Theodore, anybody? So I'm not going to offend anybody? All right. I have, uh, I had an Uncle Ed was a very funny man. I only got to know that shortly before his life, uh, before his life ended a few years ago. Um, very funny man. Anyways, Uncle Ted. We'll be talking about Uncle Ted tonight here. The title of the um, of the case study here is No Family Fights. Jack, when we get to the family reunion, anybody ever been to one of those before? When we get to the family reunion, I want to stay away from Uncle Ted. Jack's mother warned her son. He doesn't care for kids. I don't want you bothering him and getting him angry. Why isn't he like Uncle Bob and Aunt Jean, Jack asked. They like me a lot. Uncle Ted is not a believer, and he has a lot of issues in his life. It would be best if we all stayed away from him. He probably doesn't even want to see us since he knows we believe in God and go to church. I don't want to ruin the reunion with a family fight. Let's just let Uncle Ted be. Now, question one here says, evaluate the approach Jack's family is taking toward Uncle Ted. All right, Uncle Ted is, I'm not sure how old he is here, we can just say he's an old curmudgeon, set in his ways, he doesn't, want, he doesn't like children. Um, my dad has a funny little sign up outside of his little shop that he has that says, an old crab lives here. Um, he's a humorous guy. You've all met him. Um, but evaluate, uh, how, how's Jack's family taking Uncle Ted? Well, they're just, they're kind of pushing him off to the side. But like, if we put him in the closet, we don't have to think about Uncle Ted. If we just leave him over here and just stay our six feet I guess these days we keep six feet distance from Uncle Ted uh, and social distance in the the correct use of the terminology uh, then he'll be fine we'll just we'll, get, we'll all get along now we've been looking here in first Timothy 12 17 first uh, Timothy 1 12 through 17 what approach did Christ take toward Paul when he was still lost in his sins Right, the not so old young curmudgeon who is zealous in his works toward his religion, persecuting people, getting angry with people, throwing them in jail, seeing people executed. How did the Lord treat the Apostle Paul? Well, he didn't take the let's let's just set him off to the side. Well, he's set in his ways. I see Paul; he's not going to change. No, he was. He's still had compassion. He had mercy on the Apostle Paul. Kept drawing him and drawing him 
and confronting him and eventually to that miraculous con confrontation on the road to Damascus. Now, considering that, how God has sought after Saul of Tarsus, how do you think Christ would want Jack's family to deal with Uncle Tim? I think it's pretty obvious here, right? These are not rocket science uh, things here. It's, it's yes, someone in your family that's close to you might have an aversion to the things of God, might have an aversion to Jesus Christ himself. You've talked to them and witnessed to them countless times. They're still here. You can still talk to them. There's still a chance. I've told my testimony too, and just to summarize, I heard the words of what the gospel was many times. The question is, well, I should say the point is, I didn't truly hear it until I believed it. So when I believed it, I had heard the gospel. I had heard it in my soul, in that sense. And as far as we know, this Uncle Ted here, or your lost relative, they're still with us. They're here. They, can still, they still have a chance to hear, as far as we know. And we shouldn't give up on them, because as far as we know, God has not given up on them. And what is the point, too? If we're saved, and that's all we're supposed to do, is just believe the gospel, and then the Lord takes us out of here. Well, that's not what's happening, right? It's been 14 years and counting now since I've been saved. I'm still here. Which means the Lord still has something for me. And more importantly, for me to do. And we'll look at that a little bit more tonight too. So consider that too. The, the fourth point here is who in your life is seemingly hopelessly lost in sin? Something to reflect on. Something to consider. And what can you do? Right? You're here. You have this truth that lives within you now. The truth of the gospel. That what can you do to share with that person the grace that has the power to transform their life? Right? We're here. We have the truth. Let's let it out, right? Let it do its work. Speak the word of God to others around us. And pray for them. All right. <clears throat> Question number eight in your books. What would be your natural inclination towards someone who is violently opposed to you, doing everything in their power to terminate you? What's your natural reaction? Yeah, get put the dukes up. I don't know. Draw, point, bang. Um, right. It, it's it's the natural inclination is. Well, what I wrote down here is. Should I co coin this? Um, the rusty iron rule, the, uh, the antithesis of the golden rule. Do unto others before they do unto you. Right, the corrupt, pitted, rusty rule. Now, what, what do we see here? Uh, what's your natural inclination? Do we have some examples of natural inclination? Well, yeah, we do in Scripture. Acts chapter 9, we've been going there quite a lot lately. But Ananias, the man that Jesus appears to, Paul has had his encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus and is being led there now. 
And the Lord appears to a man named Ananias there and says, I got somebody coming to you. This man is Saul of Tarsus. Then Ananias answered, Lord, in verse 13, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he had done to thy saints at Jerusalem. Are you sure we're talking about the same guy? This is like the baddest, biggest, baddest dude on the block going around and pounding people. Are you sure you want me to talk to him? And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. He's doing, he's got the government behind him. He's, he's out to do his, the, the, will of the, the, the will of the people is going to come by him. Are you sure you want me to talk to him? Lord goes on to him, yes, he's a chosen vessel unto me. In Galatians chapter 1, uh, we've gone there a little bit, but Paul recounts to the Galatians his before and after salvation testimony and tells how he spent the next three years in Arabia learning from Jesus before returning to Jerusalem. But what about the disciples in Jerusalem? It's been three years now. Saul has made his trip to Damascus, was blinded, received his sight, received the salvation of the Lord and he's now returned to Jerusalem it's been three years nobody's heard about him but he's not forgotten the disciples in Jerusalem were fearful of Saul of Tarsus their natural inclination was fear Saul is here the Saul that has been given permission to go arrest Believers and throw them in prison to see them tortured, to see them con their, their belongings confiscated, to have their lives taken. This same Saul is outside at the door. Verse 26, Acts chapter 9. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to, to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not he was a disciple. You know, you ever have that that thing? Well, yeah, I'm I'm really one of you guys, and 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 uh, let's let's get along here. And the the thing is to be known as a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? You're putting on the clothing. You're putting on the clothing of a Christian. You're telling me these out of your out of your mouth, out of the words of your mouth that you're a Christian. I don't believe you, right? Talk about that in a little bit too. Paul, after his conversion, in Damascus, what is Paul doing after his conversion? In Damascus, have you heard about Jesus and salvation through his name? The Apostle Paul, once persecuting Christians, is now teaching openly about the Lord Jesus Christ. How to be saved? Have you heard about Jesus? Verse 21 of Acts chapter 9, but all that heard him were amazed and said, is not this he that destroyed the same word that we had wasted back in Galatians chapter 1? He that destroyed them which called on his name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent. He's come here to destroy us, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests. But this Saul now, born again, teaching Christ. This is the power of God working in this man's life. This doesn't come by natural means. 
You can't religion enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't be a good person enough to have this transformation occur in your life. It only comes about by one way. The G- Jesus Christ. It's, it's in him alone that we have salvation. Then in Jerusalem, what is all about? It's interesting, too. If, you, if I keep referring to it interchangeably, the Apostle Paul and Saul. But if you look, his name, he's not known as the Apostle Paul until a little while later. It's not immediately. Still Saul, known by that name, referred to him there. In Jerusalem, what's he doing when he arrives there? Well, have you heard about Jesus and salvation in his name? He's doing the same thing. Now, he's been run out of town in Damascus. They had to let him out of the city walls and, and, and secretly because he was going to die. People were threatening his life. Then in verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. All right. So we see here that Barnabas steps up says, I've seen Saul. I've seen the work that he's done. These works that he's done testify of the inward change. I can see what he's done in teaching Jesus Christ. Therefore, I can testify that, as best I know, Saul of Tarsus is a man born again, like we are. Vouching for him, in a sense. Consider that Ananias and the disciples in Jerusalem were not immediately trusting of Saul, who was known to be a zealous persecutor of the church. This guy, this guy, you're telling me this guy is a Christian? He's born again? He's teaching Christ? This guy, who was, who was uh, complicit in the, in the stoning of Stephen and of other things? This guy? So Ananias and the disciples, they were at least wary and suspected him until they beheld his conversation, right, this word that we talk about, his work, his manner, his doing, what he was known to be doing and carrying on, and the testimony of other believers such as Barnabas. There was no doubt that Saul's sin debt had been paid by Jesus, right? Each of us, the sin debt that we owe due to the life that we've lived in our past, in our present and in our future has been paid at the cross for all time. That becomes realized when we've turned from our sin and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. At that moment, you're born again. There was no doubt that Saul's sin debt had been paid by Jesus, that he was a new creature born again in Christ. The old account was settled. How would others around him know of his conversation? Well, I've alluded to it a little bit here, but James chapter 2. Verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works, can faith save him? Now, this passage of scripture here in James 2 is distorted by many. Um, It tripped me up a few times when, when speaking with Mormons, but then eventually when you understand the context of scripture, you understand the whole of scripture that works are not required for salvation. 
the blood of Jesus Christ, his death and res- death, burial, and resurrection, and our faith on that work is what's required for salvation. So where do works come in? Well, Ananias hadn't seen Paul's works. He had reason to doubt. Now, I think it's a bit foolish in a sense, but again, I'm looking at this thousands of years later, and would have I doubted in the same position? Yeah, probably. Most likely. Um, And the disciples as well, too, three years later. Having heard of Saul, they know his conversation, right? They've seen his conversation in action. And to have him come up and say, yes, I'm one of you now. You're going to have to see a little bit more than just your words. You're going to have to see some action here. Verse 17, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say that thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Right, the important part here is that God knows your faith. God knows all. You can't fool him. There's no wool to pull over the Lord's eyes. There is wool to pull over man's eyes, though. But your works will come through. Your conversation will come through. What you're known to be doing, what you are about, will testify of what you believe. The words that come out of you, other scripture will say, will defile you. Defile the man. It's just outpouring of what's within you. The outpouring of the works that you do not saying that going around and, and being the good person and, and jumping all over the place and doing the best we can here, doing helping all these people will will save you. No. If it's genuine, done out of done, done out of love for for mankind, for the brethren, for fellow believers. And the key point being done in the spirit, done by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? The works that we do, not done being led by the Spirit, profit us nothing. Uh, other passages talks about them being burned up as wood, hay, and stubble. Uh, but these works that I'm talking about, done out of genuine love for the brethren, this is what testifies of your faith toward mankind. Now again, the Lord knows who's saved and who's not. And I would argue too, you know yourself if you've born. Those are the two people. Everyone else relies on what they see. All right. uh, Question number nine. What is God's response toward Paul in verse 13? Well, it's pretty simple. It says it right here. God extended mercy to Paul. It it wasn't anything that Paul deserved. God was just showing forth his mercy to Paul. God shows his mercy forth to, to the world around us, even today. God shows his mercy toward our country as wicked as it is today. Uh, For how much longer, I don't know. We are destined for judgment in the actions and the the wickedness that we allow in our country, that we legally permit. It's legal, things that are legal, that are called wicked by God. Um, God sees. God tarries. God is long-suffering, that we'll talk about next week. God doesn't forget. God will judge. 
I should be sober. Mercy, what is mercy? Webster's 1828 dictionary defines it as the benevolence, the mildness, or tenderness of heart which disposes a person to overlook injuries or to treat an offender better than he deserves. Uh, what is the uh, financial planner? Um, you all know who I'm talking about. He, he always asks, uh, someone will ask in his radio call and show, how are you doing? And his answer is, better than I deserve. Right? I believe the man has a testimony of salvation. I wish I could recall his name. I can see his picture. <laughs> I'm bad at this. I can see uh, people's faces and not remember names. Um, all right, anyways, um, the disposition tempers justice and induces an injured person to forgive trespasses and injuries and to forbear punishment. So there's a word related to mercy that's most closely related in the English language that we have. Anyone have an idea what that might be? Mercy and grace. Grace, right? That which comes nearest to mercy is grace. It implies benevolence, tenderness, the same things, mildness, pity and compassion and clemency. Right, all these things. These are things, these are attributes most fully defined, uh, I think without argument, by God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? If we, we've talked in times past of love, what is love? What is the fullness and, and, and complete uh, manifestation of love? Well, it is God himself. Apostle John writes that God is love, simply. The, uh, maybe the second shortest verse in the Bible? Uh, Jesus wept being the first. All right, let's keep moving on here. The Lord extended mercy to Paul, to sh and to show mercy is to reach out in kindness and love toward one who is desperately in need of help. Right? You can't earn mercy. You can't earn grace in that sense, too. It, it, is, it is given, not by any merit that you have, not by any goodness of, that you have, or anything like that. To show mercy is to reach out in kindness and love toward one who is in desperate need of help. In this case, it also meant to withhold what the person actually deserved. That's another aspect of mercy, right? Paul deserved the sternest of penalties, including death. Now, why do I say that? Because that's what the law says. In Leviticus, if, if this is a man following of the Jews' religion, no matter how distorted it's become in this time, there still is the law. There still is the Torah. In Leviticus 24, verses 15 and 16, and thou, and thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curseth his God shall bear his sin. And he that blasphemeth, remember Paul has been guilty of blasphemy, and he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well as the stranger, and he that is born in the land, when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall he be put to death. Is it any more clear? If the Jews had been following their religion and not following after the man's devices and additional writings and opin opinions, right? Opinions of what scripture says. Be careful. Opinions of what you think scripture says. Uh, I know we've gone this way on Calvinism, which is just a bug for me. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bother. The opinions of men mean nothing. 
It's what God says in his word that means everything. Let us be careful, too. Not to, not to say that independent fundamental Baptists are, have, a, have a pass. We've got to get out a blasphemy card uh, jail, if we want to say that. Um, we don't. We need to be as careful, if not more careful, that we're following after what the word of God actually says. Not, we, not, what not, not our opinion of it, but what it says. <clears throat> but the Lord reached out to Saul in mercy. Paul also received an abundance of love. Verse 14 in 1 Timothy chapter 1, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And the many times that faith and love go together. It, it's... it's um, Oh, faith and love. Um, it's like, I'm being funny. It's like a burger with a piece of cheese on it. It's like they go together. It's perfect. No, it's, it's more than that, of course. Um, but this man, Saul, who was once an antagonistic and violent actor against Christians was made a new man through faith and love which is in Jesus Christ on top of this verse 12 explains that God equipped Paul for the ministry now this verse is interesting when I look through some of the commentaries on it uh, I think most of the ones that I'd read kept it pretty straight but there's a lot of distortions if you have uh, presuppositions toward the things of Augustine writings that you could easily uh, ice read into in this particular passage here. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. Now, ministry. What is ministry? I know pastor has talked about here uh, as far as titles of those that are the overseers of churches. He takes the title pastor. Some take the title minister all, I think, equally good titles, in my opinion. There are some that will take the title of, uh, I don't know, reverend or doctor so-and-so, and, and I've gone at length on my opinions of doctors and degrees and all that sort of thing, because I think it elevates the man and not the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the important thing. Who is our focus on? But ministry equals what? Ministry, service. The two things go together. A minister is a servant. Uh, the underlying Greek word, derivatives of it, I don't care to read Greek. I can't really pronounce it all that much, all that well. Mathematically, I can read the letters. Um, it, it's The root word comes from the same word that we get deacon, but it's all servant. It's service. Serving others is the role that Paul has been put into there. God has enabled and strengthened Paul for service, and God has given Paul a job to do in preaching the gospel and serving the saints through teaching, and more and more, and on and on and on. Right? Service. I think each of us here, I know each of us here, has a ministry. Now, it may be something that somebody sees openly. It may be something that's seen by only you and the Lord. 
that the Lord has given each of us, as I said before. We're here, we're saved, we're born again. He didn't take us to heaven immediately. He's left us here for a purpose. Part of our ministry is to be a witness of him, to be a servant of him in ministering the gospel to others, serving the gospel, teaching, preaching the gospel. Preaching is not only getting up here in front of a church. Preaching is talking to your friends and your neighbors and your relatives. Preaching can be out on a street corner. Preaching can be done, I've said it before too, on a computer to somebody. Um, It's better in person. There is no replacement for personal interaction, a personal body language, for uh, nonverbal cues, all of these things. That a, that a word on a page by itself cannot do. Now, I say that, and we have words printed on a page. For those of us that know the Lord, and have his indwelling spirit, these words are not just words on a page. They're the word of God that speaks to us anew and afresh. But service. God has enabled and strengthened Paul for service. 1 Corinthians 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 16. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity it is laid upon me. Yea, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. This is my ministry that the Lord has given me. The Apostle Paul is saying here. To minister the gospel. To preach the gospel. And woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, right, you, the God has given you a ministry to do. And in this case, Paul is talking about his preaching ministry. 